whatever increases or reduces perception of effort is going to have an effect on performance. That Triathlon Show, episode 17. Hey, welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we get into some real nitty-gritty science. But don't let that scare you off, because there's so much that you can learn from this interview that we have that will guaranteed improve your training and racing. In fact, I'd probably go as far as saying that today's interview has the potential to improve your triathlon performances just as much as many many months of really dedicated training if you take it to heart and apply this because it's so revolutionary in a way just knowing these things so what are we talking about today well it's in technical terms the psychobiology of endurance performance and brain endurance training and in layman's terms it could potentially be described as mind over matter although that's not exactly the right way to describe it because you can't just think your way to becoming a faster triathlete, but what you do, your mind plays a big part in it and how you perceive your effort and so on. And that's what we're going to get into. My guest today is Professor Samuele Marcora, from, who is the Director of Research at the School of Sports and Exercise Science at the University of Kent. And he is the leading expert on the field of psychobiology and in endurance performance. And he has done extensive research on the topic. And he has shown with his team that endurance performance is not just limited by our physiological fitness, but also by our minds and our mental fitness. And uh, a newer concept than uh, this is the concept of brain endurance training, which is still experimental, but very interesting, very fascinating. So we talk about that as well. And he is leading the way in this area of research. And today's interview is pretty long. So let's just jump right in. Warm welcome to the show, Samuele. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. No, it's my pleasure. And uh, anything that you want to fill in, any gaps in that intro before we get started with uh, the main topics for today? Well, I guess your <laughs> listener will find out very soon, but uh, I'm actually originally from Italy, although I did uh, my PhD and obviously I'm working at, in the UK. But I did my first degree in physical education in Milan in Italy, and then I went to the States to do my master and then moved to the UK. So I've been uh, be all over the places. Okay, that's an interesting background, definitely. And now you, you're in, at the University of Kent and you actually recently moved to Wales, I heard. So Yeah, temporarily, yes. Temporarily, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's dive into the main topic, which is uh, the psychobiology of endurance performance. So first, can you explain to us what it is and also why are the traditional physiological models not enough to explain our limits in endurance performance? Yes, there, I mean, there are two main physiological models, if you like, depending on the intensity of um, and the duration of the endurance performance. The one that tried to explain high intensity, relatively short duration endurance performance, obviously has to do with the maximum oxygen consumption. I'm sure your uh, listeners and yourself are very familiar with this concept. So, which is basically limited primarily by the amount of uh, oxygen that your cardiovascular system can pump 
to the muscle and the ability of the muscle to uh, utilize the oxygen without producing too much lactic acid uh, because that will cause muscle fatigue, etc., etc. I'm sure your readers and listeners are uh, familiar with this. Well, uh, however, becomes longer duration, obviously glycogen deprivation and the uh, running out of uh, basically of this energy source within the muscle has also been proposed as one of the main uh, causes of fatigue. Regardless of the precise mechanism, there's actually the energy depletion model of the cardiovascular kind of muscle fatigue model. They all have as an assumption that your their capacity to maintain a given pace for a prolonged period of time, which is actually what I'm primarily investigate, which is the very basics of any endurance performance, is limited by your muscle fatigue. So your muscle, your locomotor muscle, are to sustain your pace regardless of how much effort you put into the task. So it's like a, some sort of a, a physiological failure, if you like. I actually tested this assumption in a very simple study because I couldn't actually find any published research actually testing this assumption that's been uh, around for decades. And when I did, I demonstrated that immediately after exhaustion doing an endurance task, uh, they actually the muscle were capable, the muscle, not just the muscle, but the, the central nervous system in connection with the muscle. So the, 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 the whole body was able to produce way more power than the power required by the endurance exercise, suggesting that the causes of what we call exhaustion, the reason for the person being unable to sustain that pace was not the failure of the neuromuscular system to produce the power, but something else. And, um, and my suggestion is that uh, is actually our perception of effort and in combination with our motivation that limits the, the ability to sustain a given pace for a prolonged period of time. In other words, you stop because you feel that you are unable to continue to maintain that pace or you slow down when you, when you do a race. Not because you are, you are really unable to, but because you feel you are unable to. So that's in a, a very short, uh, short summary of, uh, of the model. Yes, and that is absolutely fascinating and, and really interesting that nobody had done that study before because I, as you said, it's a pretty simple setup really and, uh, and easy to test that hypothesis. So yes, okay. you mentioned the role of, of perception of effort in fatigue and fatigue tolerance or uh, as triathletes may be familiar with, another term for perception of effort is uh, RPE or rate of perceived exertion. So can you dive into that a bit deeper? Yeah, well, RPE, ratings of perception, is a measure of perception of effort. And like any psychological measure, suffers from some limitation when used as a research tool or as a monitoring tool, you know. But however, a lot of research since the 60s when this measure was developed is that actually humans, a lot of studies have shown that humans, and not just athletes, I mean, any, any human can give a pretty accurate rating of perceivization as for example, some physiological measure of effort. So there is a very high correlation between physiological measure of effort, such as heart rate or lactic acid, etc., and perception of effort. So we are pretty good at rating uh, the amount of effort that we are exerting, which is, you know, very, very useful. However, obviously, this measure, but uh, so the perception of effort and ratings of perceivization are not exactly the same thing. And of course, you don't need to give a rating by pointing a number on a scale or by saying a number. That's the act of measuring it in order to feel effort. You feel effort even if you never saw an RP scale, if you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> so you don't need to think about it. And you need to, to think about it when you have to give a rating. But normally, something that you experience without uh, 
they need to think in RP terms. And I think it's quite important because otherwise people get, and actually, although obviously we measure with the RP scale, what actual feeling that we are trying to measure with that scale. And there is a lot of, a bit of a confusion also because the scale has been used sometimes in a bad way, in my opinion. So a lot of people kind of include in the ratings of perceivization, include things like pain or general discomfort, for example, when you're very hot and, and sticky, or, you know, you have a pain in the bum because of uh, saddle sores and all this kind of stuff. You know, obviously, those are sensations that you can experience doing exercise and from perception of effort. When I talk about perception of effort and ratings of personalization, I mean the conscious sensation of how hard basically you are, for example, driving your legs when you're cycling on running, or how, and, and also how heavily you're breathing. And the combination of these sensations together give what we call overall ratings of perceived exertion, which is a measure of effort. Yes. Okay. And it's good that you clarified that. Even I had did a mix up about between the the two, and the, the one is the measure of the other. So that's uh, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. So can you no now problem. explain how uh, how the rating of or the perception of effort affects fatigue tolerance and uh, and how we perform in endurance events and training? Yeah. I mean. The key is that, and everybody that's been on, has done any endurance activity knows it very well. The key is actually, it's not effort per se. For example, start even with a very high effort, let's say zero, meaning no effort, 10, maximal effort. Let's say if we start a very high intensity exercise with an effort of eight, if that perception of effort stayed constant, we could, in, from a purely psychological point of view, we could sustain, obviously assuming that we are motivated, but we could sustain a perception of effort equivalent to eight forever, um, is the increase in perception of effort over time. That's why define as, if you like, as fatigue, because perception of effort per se is not a measure of fatigue. So, for example, I'm a heavy guy, you know, I'm an ex-American football player, although I'm Italian, but... And if you lift me, you will give me very high ratings of perceived exertion. But that's not because you are fatigued. It's because I'm too heavy because I eat too much. Okay? So per se, a measure of perception of effort is not a measure of fatigue. What's important in terms of fatigue and endurance performance is the fact that even if you maintain speed, over time there will be a progressive increase in perception of effort. And eventually, because over time perception of effort increases, you will reach eventually a point at which you feel that effort is very, very high and it's equivalent to the maximal amount of effort that you are willing to exert in order to, for example, win the competition. And obviously, in people who are highly motivated, that means reaching a level of effort that is equivalent to what you perceive as maximum. And that's the key, is this progressive increase in perception of effort over time that is the key to determine for how long you can keep a certain pace. And basically, I and I mean, you can, uh, as an athlete yourself, you can probably kind of confirm <laughs> what I'm going to say. This thing, speed, perception of effort, and time and perception of effort is what you basically use to pace yourself, even if without thinking about it very much. Because obviously, the reason why you don't start an Ironman at the same speed of a sprint triathlon <laughs> is because you know the pace that you, you start a sprint triathlon, it would give you, a very, you know, you would be exhausted, you will reach your maximum perception of effort well before the end of um, an Ironman. And that's how you adjust your speed based on basically how you feel. And this essentially has been kind of hypothesized, you know, I'm, I'm not the first one to say these things yes. in, in the scientific literature. 
has been around since Morgan in the 70s. But nobody has actually really put serious investigations in this parameter. This is why it's kind of the all of the rage now, but um, you know, since about 15, 20 years ago, since central governor model. Yes, um, and I, I just want to cut in here for a little bit because you cut out a couple of times when you were huh. mentioning key points about how the Damn two it. are related. So I just yeah. want to make sure that the listeners get the sense of what we're saying here. So you are saying that if you keep your your speed, your output, your performance constant, then your your perception of effort will increase as you do that over a longer period of time. Was that what you were saying? Yeah, I mean, you just go out and you keep a certain pace, right? At the beginning, after, let's say, half an hour, an hour, that you are running at that pace, your perception of effort will be higher than at the very beginning. And, and, then, and that's when people, when people say, oh, I'm getting fatigued. Basically, what they are saying is that the same pace requires more effort than when I was rested and, and not fatigued at the beginning of the exercise. But, and of course, how quickly it increases over time depends a lot on the intensity, on the relative intensity of that speed that you are trying to, to maintain. Okay. And uh, can you tell us about the research that you have done since that study that you mentioned already that you proved that physiological models by themselves are not the only determinant of limits in endurance performance? And what have you done since to show how perception of effort is related to performance? Yes. That study that we discussed is a very simple study. And I said that a lot of my colleagues in physiology obviously were not very happy about it because kind of put in discussion... Uh, you know, kind of a long held belief. Having said that, now two more groups, one from uh, Spain and one from the United States, have kind of replicated the findings. So it's not just me. It uh, now seems to be uh, other people have measured the same. Actually, they measured an increase in power after a VO2 mass test. You have done a VO2 mass test, right? So you keep increasing the speed or the power output until you think you cannot keep going. But immediately after, if you're to mass test, they measure maximum power output in your legs. And that was way above the power required by the, even the last stage of a to mass test. So they even kind of replicated it at a, a higher intensity. But I think the most important, if you like, proof that the physiological models are not enough to explain endurance performance is the fact that you can endurance performance or, or decrease endurance performance purely with psychological manipulations to this later, like things like self-talk and mental fatigue. These are factors that have no effect on your contractility of your cardiac muscle. They don't have an effect on your glycogen concentration in your leg muscles. They don't uh, increase hemoglobin. You know, they don't, they don't have the physiological effects that we normally associate with a, a change in, perfor in endurance performance. However, they can have very profound effects on endurance performance. So study that, that I've done also uh, kind of demonstrate that uh, endurance performance is certainly in part uh, limited by psychological factors. But otherwise, you know, whether you talk to yourself or not, you give yourself some motivational statements or whether you're mentally fatigued or not, it shouldn't have any effect on performance according to the traditional models, but they do. And that's very interesting. And that's something that many athletes will be familiar with. They've heard people say that you should use different mantras in your races and uh, positive self-talk. So can you, just for those that are not familiar with positive self-talk, what is it? What should a good mantra be that you use? And then how have you shown that that is actually positively affecting performance yeah so we myself i'm not i'm originally in a, a physio, i'm not a, a practicing psychologist i know 
a certified psychologist, but I can give you some tips. But I suggest people to other, you know, find a good sports psychologist or find some good sports psychology books or resources on the internet. There are, there are quite a few, although unfortunately they're still not specific to endurance. We are working with some um, colleagues in Carla Mahan in my department and many others, and we're actually putting together a book specific on psychology of endurance performance. But that will take about at least a year or more before it comes out. We are just starting pulling it together. Anyway, so self-talking is basically talking to yourself either out loud or within your head. And we do this all the time naturally. The first thing is obviously has to be positive. The problem is that a lot of people talk down themselves, if you like. We call it negative self-talk, and that can actually impair performance. But within what we call positive self-talk, differentiate between different kinds of self-talk. For example, motivational or instructional. So, for example, if you think about, I don't know, keep your elbow high when you're, when you're swimming or some sort of, of form-related statements that, uh, you know, help you to focus and to remind yourself, you know, to keep a good form, for example, during swimming, that's what we call it instructional self-talk. And to be honest, there have been some studies that included that, but um, there's no strong evidence that that works so much. What we've done in my lab and also in other people in other labs and has been found to be effective is what we call motivational self-talk. So basically you give yourself, you talk to yourself and give yourself positive state related to motivation and kind of self-efficacy or things like you can do it, you feel good, keep going, um, this kind of very simple short words that can be very effective. However, I'm reluctant to give you what you, you guys call mantras because what we did in our study, and I think it's very, very important, and sports psychology will tell you that, it's important to individualize these statements, you know, and, uh, and people should pick up the ones that they found more, most effective from a motivational point of view, and most important, also to practice them during training. So yes. It's not that, something that you do only during, uh, during the race. That's a good point, and that's something that we discussed at length in episode four, I think it was, of the show when we had Justin Rosson, who is a sports psychologist, so the listeners can go back and listen to that for more specific details on, on that part of, of psychology in endurance performance. And I want to dive into the next topic a bit, unless there's one more question about this. How do you then the, monitor the fatigue and your mental state and how it can affect your performance in training and in, in uh, racing? Yes, I mean... Perception, uh, sorry, uh, motivational self-talk, we found it to be effective. And one of the reasons, it's not just because it increases motivation, but because it reduces perception of effort. And yes, this, okay, that's, that's good Good that you clarify that. So yeah, we, yeah, we got yeah. a reason, know, know why it works as well. Yeah, very, very yeah. And we think it's related to self-efficacy. So you basically convince yourself that, for example, maintaining a certain pace is, is easier. <laughs> and as a result, you actually, you feel it is easier. Perception of effort and self-efficacy are kind of well-related in a, in a circular way, if you like. So if a task is perceived to be easy, obviously your self-efficacy to compass is going to be higher. But vice versa, if you are able to increase your self-efficacy, you will also reduce the perceived effort for a given task. But anyway, going back to the mental fatigue you were talking about, that's in a way kind of one of my specialties discussed earlier. There has been lots and lots and lots of research on muscle fatigue and endurance performance and a variety of physiological factors that determine muscle fatigue. In very, very little interest on mental fatigue. I mean, when I did my study, and it was published in 2009, was done a year or two earlier, looking to the literature, and the only published study, within inverted commas, that I could find was basically just a, within a, a book chapter, 
written by another Italian physiology professor in 1891. Wow. 1991. 1891. <laughs> it's a very nice book. You can also find it on the internet, PDF translated in English. It's a very, it's a beautiful book. It's almost like a humanities book more than a scientific one. Um, it's called Fatica, Fatigue. And he was basically referring to, so this guy was also very important in physiology because he built the very first way to measure muscular work with the system, uh, again, the, you can find pictures on the, on the internet. His name was Angelo Mosso. And he basically, he built the first kind of ergometer, if you like, uh, right. measuring work. But it was measuring the work produced by the middle index finger lifting some weights. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> mm. a, very, a very small muscle group. And uh, basically, people were asked to lift a certain weight for as long as they can lift it. And he, he measured two fellow professors in, of physiology. Uh, one day, I think it was 25, 24th of April, 1890. <laughs> and then the day after, they repeated this, this middle index finger kind of endurance test. <laughs> after all morning giving lectures on, on oral examination. So the two professors were mentally fatigued because, you know, my fellow, you know, professor lecturers know very well that, you know, uh, giving four or six hours of lectures, at the, after that you're really mentally drained. It can be a very fatiguing um, experience. But finding was that their, let's call it time to exhaustion in this middle index endurance performance test was significantly reduced uh, the yeah the day in which they did the lectures before the test uh, and that's it this is these were the only data in the literature that's on yeah. mental on mental fatigue on physical performance yes but that's that's extremely fascinating that uh, he did that in the late yeah. 1800s that's uh, <laughs> very oh, yeah. cool and, oh, yeah. well, it was it was one of the 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 fathers of the scientific study of, of fatigue but the the, the and I basically I have done a proper experiment well under than 20 years later or something. <laughs> I use whole body exercise, you know, cycling as a time to exhaustion test with the cycling exercise. Obviously, I did, you know, more than two people and I did proper randomization, all the kind of things that we, you need to do when to do a proper experiment. And we actually, but confirm that we induce using a, um, a mentally demanding cognitive task on a computer for 90 minutes was, um, you know, significantly reduced omas. The reduction in this measure of the newest performance, which we call time to resource. So basically, for how long you can keep a certain pace, basically. We just measure for how long you can do it. In time to resource, which was about 15, 20%, I don't remember now, that, um, off the top of my head, was to the reduction that you get by pre-fatiguing the leg muscles. So in a, in a study we did the year before, we published the year before, we induced uh, muscle fatigue by doing 100 drop jumps before doing the cycling test. Wow. Yes. So it's like, a, and, and this pre-fatiguing of the locomotor muscle induced a reduction in performance as you would expect. But what, what was fascinating is that mental fatigue caused a very similar reduction to the pre-fatiguing the leg muscle. So the fatigue is at least as important as the fatigue in your muscles in terms of limiting and the term, sorry, determining endurance performance. But uh, it shouldn't be surprising because both fatigue and mental fatigue, they both have the same psychological effect, obviously through different physiological mechanisms, but a psychological level, which the, the way I, I frame it, is exactly the same it increases the perception of effort. So whether you have a tired mind 
or whether you have tired legs, the effect is the same. When you go on the bike or running or whatever, we also did the study we haven't published on swimming is that the effect is the same. The same pace feels harder. And therefore, you will reach the point at which you feel that you have given your maximal effort earlier than in the condition that we call it control condition, where you do this, the same endurance test without uh, pre-fatigue, either muscular or mental. That's absolutely fascinating. And, and it makes, makes it very tangible that you have that comparison with uh, the 100 drop jumps from as pre preconditioning or pre-fatiguing the legs it's i mean that's huge anybody who's been in the in the gym doing those sorts of plyometric exercises know that <laughs> it's extremely taxing on on the body so yeah. to, to have yeah. that that uh, mental task fatigue you as much for a physiological effort well that is obviously psychological as well that's yeah it's uh, it's incredible that it that the effect is that large Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is that there is a, 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 some misunderstanding sometimes of, of my model. People think that what I call the psychobiological model is only, the, the explanation that I give is only relevant to psychological manipulations. But actually, my proposal is that regardless of whether it is psychological or physiological in nature, whatever affects your perception of effort, And all motivation. But let, let's put motivation aside now, assuming that, you know, motivation is uh, always high. Adobes is not always like in competition. Yes, most of the time, yes. But doing training is a different story. Uh, it's difficult to maintain very high motivation every training session. But let's assume that motivation is very high, is unchanged. What determines endurance is perception of effort. And whether perception of effort is increased because of muscle fatigue, because you are taking carbohydrates, whether it is affected by mental fatigue or self-talk, doesn't matter. logical level, whatever increases or reduces perception of effort is going to have an effect on performance. Of course, anything that increases perception of effort will reduce your performance. Anything that reduces perception of effort will increase your performance. So there's no, at that level of explanation, like I call it, there's no difference between physiology and psychology. You know, there is a change in perception of effort you're gonna, it's going to affect your performance. Yeah, and that's a very good and uh, a nice overview of your model. And it, it makes sense. It definitely does make sense because uh, I do believe that for most of us, it's we at a level we know that there's always a possibility to go just a little, little bit further. Can you go one meter more at this pace? Yes, sure, you could, but but you don't because you feel like you've given it your all. But then you look at somebody like the Brownlees in the Olympics and they, they just they don't have any breaks, basically, and they go that little bit further. So And they just don't feel the effort as much as we do. So, yeah, I guess it, it makes sense when you look at it from, from that standpoint as well. Yeah, so, and it gives you, gives you also a little bit of hope because if it was all down to physiology, you may put the link to my lecture, um, short lecture on YouTube. Basically, in terms of trying to manipulate our physiology, although, you know, there is always some advance, but a lot has been done in the past 100 years from a, a scientific or a training point of view, you know, in terms of, you know, nutritional supplementation or even in terms of doping, you know, think about erythropoietin and stuff like that. So a lot has been done on trying to biological factors that determine endurance performance. However, the fact that also psychological factor can have an effect on perception of effort, not just physiological ones. It gives you some hope that we can expose psychology a bit better to endurance and gain by doing that, but also come up with some innovative manipulations that may further improve endurance over and above, you know, everything that you guys already do and you should keep doing, you know, obviously training and nutrition and everything else. Uh, 
saying that the, the mind is important is a, is a limiting factor for endurance performance doesn't mean that one doesn't need to train or, <laughs> or, or do it. Because actually, the best way to reduce perception of effort is to train. So, you, you know, you, you will reduce the perception of effort for a given speed or power output by training. That's still the best way of doing it. But on the top of that, we can now provide evidence-based, more scientifically valid strategies for, like, you know, we mentioned the self talk for people to improve their performance over and above what you guys already do normally. Yes. And uh, one thing that you have uh, now tried or you have shown in scientific studies that may be a, a great concept uh, for athletes to do that, go ahead and do that in a very structured and validated way is brain endurance training. And that concept, and you already kind of mentioned it in uh, in reference to to another topic that we that we talked about in a previous question here but but can you just as training perspective go into this, this a bit more what what it is really and how how it can benefit athletes trying to to use it or, and implement it in their training yes I mean, it's a, still a, an a experimental stage we did um, well a small study which we published some years ago now in an abstract form and then I've done a larger study which was uh, funded by the Ministry of Defense here in the UK because the, they were interested in um, kind of soldier performance. Obviously, there, there, there are a lot of parallels between soldiers and athletes. And uh, uh, so actually the funding was uh, not that it was to study performance of soldiers. But what we found is that, okay, go, go into reverse for a sec. So as I said earlier, mental fatigue acutely reduces your performance. Yes. Anything that acutely reduces your performance, the idea is that the body, if repeated frequently enough for a, with enough recovery in between sessions, the body, or in this case the brain, will adapt and so that next time it's faced with the same acute, let's call it stress, is more resistant to it. So the, the very basic idea of, of brain endurance, or one of the basic ideas of brain endurance training is that by increasing on purpose the workload on the brain during endurance exercise and there are a couple of ways you can do it I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you in a minute but the brain will become more resistant to mental fatigue because mental fatigue obviously in our study we induce it with uh, some kind of computerized task what people don't understand is that endurance performance itself is mentally fatiguing a lot of people think it's just when you when you look at somebody running or cycling, or they think, oh, it's just a kind of a physical kind of performance. But you you guys know very well that it takes one of the cognitive demands of a neuro's performance is very important in terms of mental fatigue. We call it kind of there are many names in in, in psychology. People call it inhibitory control or response inhibition, cognitive control. But the simple description is that basically any kind of short term impulse or gain in order to achieve a long-term goal. So when you are running and you feel tired, you may feel some pain in your, in your legs and it's hard and everything is going wrong. For example, to keep going in face of those difficulties requires what we, we call inhibitory control because you want to reach a goal that, you know, for example, to obviously to win the competition. Um, yep. A very demanding cognitive ability, cognitive process. And if you have to assert this inhibitory control, and obviously you also need to assert, you know, if you want to pace yourself right and pay attention to your competitors and et cetera, et cetera, you also need to maintain sustained attention during uh, 
a competitive event, right? So all these cognitive processes are mentally fatiguing. So cycling, swimming for prolonged period of time, and even more so in a competitive situation, is very demanding on the brain from a cognitive and also obviously motivational and emotional point of view. So a triathlon is not fatiguing only the muscle, it's also fatiguing your brain. So if you become more resistant to mental fatigue, the idea is that you will become less mentally fatigued during the competition. Therefore, you can perform better because obviously you can increase the, the pace because your perception effort is lower for a given pace. You can just increase a little bit in order to maintain the pace, the, the perceptual effort that you can maintain over the, you know, the duration of the, of the race. So, and that, that's the, the, the rationale, biological rationale, because some of the brain areas that are associated with this inhibitory control, also the areas associated with perception of effort. So there is actually some neurobiological explanation underlying uh, this brain endurance training, but you can do it. Do you want to ask me something? Sorry. Yeah, no, uh, it was uh, really good to hear you talk about that rationale in, in detail. And, and I was just wondering, so you did it with a computerized cognitive task. And uh, what, what, yeah. what would you say at the moment? If First of all, you say that it's, it's experimental. So do you still recommend that we should wait for more studies to be done before we start actually implementing it specifically in our training? But on, And if we still want to do it right now, what would be the best way to go about? Are there any, any other things you can do while training that would induce the same mental fatigue that, uh, that you got through the computerized task if you don't have access to like, the equipment that you have in your lab? Yeah, well, some of the computerized tasks that I use can be found on the internet. For example, obviously, the problem that, for example, if you do, you know, now you guys is in the winter, right? I mean, you were saying that you just did a bicycle training. Did you do it on, on the rollers or outside? Yes, in, inside, inside, inside the train. So, for example, if you do some indoor, you know, with the, on an ergometer training, you can, you can, yeah, just put a, a keyboard on your, on your handlebars and, and do some, uh, some of these tasks, uh, the only problem that the tasks that you can find online, they, they are very short, so you have to keep going and repeat. We are actually working now with uh, working on this thing forever because it's not really my job to make apps and there's problems with some of the companies we work with anyway. But hopefully, <laughs> but I keep saying this every time I have an interview, we should have soon like a, an app that you can use on a smartphone, for example, or iPad, for example, during the indoor training session because you can use visual stimuli you know, on the screen. So you, you respond to stimuli on the screen. That's the cognitive task that we use in our studies. However, obviously, you cannot do that <laughs> when you are outdoor running, for example. So what we are developing is a, is a cognitive task that overload your brain, but it's based on, on sounds. Instead of listening to music or actually or mix with the music, you can actually do a cognitive task, you know, hip plugs attached to a smartphone. Um, which is something that a lot of people use, especially you know, recreational people, recreational runners uh, use. It's something that you could do this app. But this is a form of brain endurance training. I call it concurrent brain endurance training. So you do the mentally fatiguing cognitive task at the same time that you're doing the endurance training session. And this is what we tested in the missile defense funded study. So we have two groups. They were doing exactly, no, this were not athletes, were kind of, you know, normal, fit, young people. And we, you know, we did the baseline test of your 2 max and also of uh, endurance with the time to exhaustion test. And then both groups did exactly the same 
amount of endurance training. And for you triathletes, it's ridiculous, but for normal people, it's, uh, so we did three sessions a week, the Wednesday, Friday for one hour on the bike, on a circular ergometer, you know, to control the, the workload, very precise, etc. You know, standard, normal endurance, you know, moderate intense exercise endurance, continuous endurance training, three times a week for 12 weeks. But one group did just that, you know, standard endurance training. The other group, while they were cycling, they were doing on, on a computer screen with the, with the buttons put on the handlebar, they were doing a, a mentally demanding cognitive task. Importantly, this cognitive task, and that's the key, you know, some people say, oh, can't I just do like a mathematics in my head? The answer is no, because you need cognitive tasks that have difficult, although, you know. The, the, you need a cognitive task that, what was that? And the cognitive task is called AXCPT, AS Continuous Performance Test, but it doesn't matter. There are a variety of tasks that you can use. The key component, though, is that you have what we call this kind of inhibitory control. In the, in, in the most famous one, it's called the, the Stroop task. So basically, you see the words, you know, red, blue, or, or white, you know, of colors, the names of the colors. And sometimes, no, actually, it depends how you set it up. Let's say 50% of the time, the word red is written in red. Color of the word and the, and the meaning of the word are congruent. See, yep. the problem is you have to respond to the color of the word, not the meaning of the word. The problem is that and when, and when they are congruent, it's very easy. When, for example, you, you write the word red in green, basically a conflict between the meaning of the word red and the color of the word that is green. And your brain has to inhibit to go with the meaning of the word in order to give the correct answer, which is green. You have to press the green button, not the red button, if you know what I mean. Yes, so, yes. You know, you, you would say, what the hell does that have anything to do with endurance performance? <laughs> but actually, the brain areas that are, are activated when you do that, when you inhibit your kind of automatic response to go with the red button and push the green one, you know, because the green is the color of the word, the correct answer. In order to do that, you fire exactly the same brain areas that are at least in part associated with generational perception of effort during physical tasks but also that you would activate if you are in pain, for example, or fatigue, and you inhibit the urge, if you like, of your body. You know, your body is telling you stop, 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 or slow down, right? But because you want to win the race, you force yourself to you inhibit this normal tension. You know, most people would just give up and slow down or just stop. You guys keep going. And that control fires exactly the same brain areas that are fired by this cognitive task. But this is why mathematics is not ideal because you don't have that component. You know, doing mathematics in your head is not the ideal task for brain endurance training for that reason, even if it can be difficult for some people, but it doesn't have this component of uh, inhibitory control. So you need some specific tasks. And this one, it's a, you respond to combination of letters, but it doesn't matter. You have this in inhibitory component and you keep doing that basically for an hour, three times a week while you're cycling. That was the brain endurance training group. And this is what I call the concurrent brain endurance training because you do the endurance training and the cognitive tasks at the same time. And is there any additional benefit to doing that while you're actually the concurrent and brain endurance training? Or have you, have you found that in studies or is it just, still just something that you haven't tried with doing the same sort of cognitive tasks but doing it separate from the endurance training? 
Yeah, we did a, a small study, so you know the the data are not as reliable as the the second one I just described. But we did a small study. Hutchinson did that, which is, I call it the separate brain endurance training. So they did the mentally fatiguing task and the and the endurance training completely separate, right? Right. And we we also found an, an improvement, but it wasn't nearly as large as the improvement that we found with the concurrent. So it seems that. The concurrent is is better than doing the task completely separate from the endurance training, to you know, because the the subjects were different. It's you know, it's, from a, a scientific point of view, I don't have a strong evidence, but the data so far suggests that doing it at the same time it may be better. And, and actually, in that study we did it at the same time it was mainly a practical one because you don't want to increase the amount of time that a soldier has to train in order to get to get a benefit. So we combine it because basically you train the same amount of time, but, but you, know, you combine the two kinds of training to get a better a better response. Well, that is very re- relevant for triathletes as well, because exactly, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. But also there are some evidence that exercise stimulates some uh, um, substances like NGF, the nerve factor, IGF, so like uh, substances that kind of increase. The ability of the of the brain to form, for example, new connection or to the neurogenesis, we call it. You know, the neurons which are the cells that make up the brain kind of branch out better, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there may be a, a synergy between, if you like, anabolic effect of the of exercise on the brain and the cognitive task. However, I didn't mention this study. So in terms of fitness, both groups improve the same in terms of your two max, which is not surprising because. From a physiological point of view, they did exactly the same amount of work. Exact. We we did it on the ergometer. We controlled it very well. But when we did the time to exhaustion test, found improvement in in your two max. So they were exercising. Everybody was exercising at the same relative intensity. They, which is the standard training group, improved time to exhaustion by I think 50%, 45%, fifty percent, forty five percent, forty five, fifty percent. Forty five. Okay. Yeah, yep. it's a time to exhaustion. It's not a time trial. Yeah. The group that did the brain endurance training study improved kind of 100%, so doubled. How long were those times to exhaustion around about? So they basically went from about 20 minutes, half an hour, to 40 to 60 minutes. Okay, yeah. The well, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were just act, active people, so you can expect a, a bigger improvement, but it's still very, very interesting that the, that the difference between the two groups were so big so that you, yeah. you really found also, a strong effect there. You're too max, though. So there were both groups. So we increased the power output at which they were doing the Viotumac, the Tantosostrum test. Yeah, so you controlled for every, for everything. So yeah, that, that's what, yeah. what what makes it such a an interesting and exciting finding, even though it uh, needs needs more. It's still an experimental stage, as you say, with uh, with just the one large-ish study done so far. But it's it's very exciting for sure. And yeah. uh, we've been going on for a long time, and I could go on for so much longer. As uh, some of the listeners may know, that I'm in my day job, I'm, I'm an engineer, and I work for a, uh, a company that basically works with brain stimulation devices. So this is very close to both my day job and then my my, <laughs> my alter ego as a triathlete and triathlon coach. But we need to wrap this up pretty soon. I actually have another interview tonight, but we'll move into the rapid fire question segment. And Sam, I want to challenge you to answer these within maximum 30 seconds, each of these questions. So the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports, psychology, or triathlon? Okay, for books, I would say, How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald, which is a nice combination of kind of science and, 
and kind of stories. And as a blog, I think you mentioned before, you know, Sweat Science by Alex Hutchinson on Run, it's inside Runner's World website. Uh, it's a very good source of kind of uh, digestible scientific information about endurance. So I would suggest your readers to to follow him. It's uh, uh, yeah, it's very very good. Yes. And what are what good mantra that you would recommend? We have actually talked about this, but you can answer it again. That you'd recommend triathletes use in their positive motivational self talk. Yeah, you, you, you basically answered, I, I wouldn't give a specific mantra. It, it, as soon as they are positive, not negative, and as soon as they are motivational, they are kind of works for you, they are relevant to you, and practice them in training. There's no magic word, you know? It, it's what works for you, as soon as they are motivational and positive. What's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I would say, basically, try not to stay in my comfort zone and, for example, just read within physiology, but just, just uh, you know, look outside of my own discipline. And that's been very useful in my scientific career. It's very difficult, it's hard, but, but uh, I gain a lot by, for example, neuroscience, not just exercise physiology. Yes, all the magic happens outside the comfort zone. Do yeah. you have a productivity hack that you use to fit everything into uh, what I'm sure is a very busy life? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not that good, I guess. <laughs> As we know, multitasking is very bad. So what I'm trying to do now is to have uh, the colleague kind of, um, you know, a, a time zone, you know, like I, I put away some, you know, half a day or a day during the week where, for example, I can just write up or read uh, without being distracted by so many other things. It's, it's very difficult to achieve, but it's the only way to do really, uh, you know, meaningful, very, very deep work. So that's what I'm trying to do at the moment, actually. It's difficult, but I'm trying. Speaking of deep work, that's a book that I really recommend reading, if if you haven't already. That's the name of a book. I can't remember the author, but it's right. excellent. Okay, I'll, I'll give it a go then. I'll, I'll have a look on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what's a common but perhaps surprising trait of mentally strong endurance athletes? Yeah, I mean... We actually measured, we did a study where we compare recreational cyclists with kind of really good Australian road cyclists, you know, professionals. And we found that, uh, not surprisingly, but it was surprising the way we measured it, that they have much higher resistance to mental fatigue and much higher inhibitory control than the recreational ones. And this has been measured on cognitive tasks. They have nothing to do with the endurance performance. So it's um, the surprising thing is that this goes across different domains of life, not just endurance, but also, you know, cognitive tasks and other, other things that you do in your life is a very basic trait. Right. Is there an example from everyday life about when you would uh, exhibit inhibitory control? Yeah, for example, I mean, if you think about, I mean, if you are an endurance athlete that struggles, um, for example, with, uh, with weight, uh, I don't, I mean, most of you guys are lean, <laughs> but if, if middle age, maybe, you know, like more amateur you know, the ability to, for example, diet and not, not to eat for, you know, se several weeks in order to make your racing weight. That's an example of, like, not endurance related to exert inhibitory control because, obviously, there is a lot of tempting food around and, and, and most of things like, you know, going to sleep, avoid alcohol, partying, all these kind of aspects of uh, an, an elite endurance artist, they all involve inhibitory control. It's not just the training that goes into being an elite um, okay. athlete. Yes, excellent. This has been very, very fascinating, Sam. I'm super thankful that you came on the show and this will be very interesting for the listeners. I'm sure 
Can you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and what you guys got going on? And uh, if there's anything you want to plug, then feel free and go ahead to do that. Yeah, I'm actually working now more on stuff that's very relevant to kind of ultra endurance athletes rather than triathlon. Obviously, although you know a triathlon is an ultra endurance event, but I mean ultra endurance events where multi-day events. So where sleep deprivation is an issue. Because obviously sleep deprivation is a, if you like, an extreme form of mental fatigue and can reduce your performance. So, you know, what's the optimal schedule for sleeping and uh, how to best use caffeine, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's the kind of stuff that I'm working on at the moment. And I think the best way to find out about what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter. Gosh, I forgot the Twitter. You can find it. I think it's at somewhere in the UK, but I'm not sure. Yes, we'll, we'll have it on the show notes. So, Yeah. That's, that's the social media that I use to promulgate my research. And uh, so I think that's the best way to get in touch with me, basically. And there you have it. If you found that interview even half as fascinating as I did, then I think this is going to be a hit, a very popular episode. I'm sorry for the connection issues that we had at some points. That's the problem and the big uncertainty when, when you're doing podcast interviews. You never know when a when an ugly British storm is going to hit your guest's internet connection and slow it down really bad. So sorry about that. Hope you still could listen and, and get the gist of what was going on and what we were talking about. And uh, one more thing. I'm really curious. In these last two episodes, episode 16 and today in episode 17, we've been hitting it pretty hard on the science side of things. And uh, I'm curious, do you enjoy these kinds of episodes with me myself talking about getting into a bit more technical stuff and researchers like Samuele? Or is it too technical, too much research and science and uh, you prefer some other kind of episodes? I really want this podcast to be the podcast that you want to listen to. So I appreciate all your feedback. Just send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and tell me what you think. As always, you can go to thattriathlonshow.com to get the show notes. They will be released in a few days' time. And can I ask you, if you enjoy the show and find value in it, would you mind helping me get the word out by telling one single friend about it? Just one single friend that's into triathlon and might find this useful. That would really make my week. In the next episode on That Triathlon Show, we're talking to Brenton Ford, an Australian triathlon swim coach, and we go into detail on open water swimming specifically. Thank you for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.